All right, welcome to the Medicine Podcast. This is Dr. Christopher Hernandez, your host, and today we're going to be discussing dementia. A special thanks to Dr. Christopher Wood for looking over the content of this episode. Okay, no matter who you are, you're going to run into dementia. You probably have people in your own family with a dementia syndrome. You may already have dementia yourself and not even realize it. Just kidding. But in all seriousness, it's an important topic to be familiar with and understand. Any medical student can tell you that Lewy body dementia is associated with hallucinations and that Alzheimer's is the most common dementia syndrome. So today we're going to be going into a little more detail. We'll cover all the most common causes of dementia, both reversible and non, both neurodegenerative and non, and I'll try to weave in all the most important facts and terminology as we go along. So let's get started. What is dementia? It isn't really a diagnosis in itself, nor is it just a symptom exactly. I would say that dementia is a syndrome defined partly by progressive impairment in cognitive function. Cognitive function itself can be broken into various categories or domains, memory, language, executive function, visuospatial function, and behavior, let's say. When a patient has evidence of impairment in more than one of those cognitive functions, and the impairment is progressive, and the overall result is a loss of independent function or some sort of significant impact on their ability to go about their lives, in other words, an impact on their ADLs, or at least their IADLs, then you have a dementia syndrome. Anything less than that is just MCI, or mild cognitive impairment. One thing to take away from this definition is that unchanging lesions, such as the aftermath of a single bad stroke or a traumatic brain injury, would not necessarily be considered dementia, because although those events can certainly result in similar impairments of cognitive function, that impairment is typically fixed. That is to say, it's not changing, it's not progressing. So technically speaking, the progressive part of the definition is key, though providers may not always be so finicky about the term's use in everyday practice. Okay, let's go right into a discussion of the various types of dementia. One reasonable way to divide the various dementia syndromes in your mind is into two categories. Those that involve the actual loss of underlying brain tissue, that is the neurodegenerative dementias, and those that don't, that is the non-neurodegenerative dementias. Normal pressure hydrocephalus and vascular dementia fall into this latter category, while Alzheimer's dementia, Lewy body slash Parkinson's dementia, frontotemporal dementia, and Huntington's dementia all fall into the neurodegenerative category. Those dementias, in addition to the loss of brain tissue, are also associated with a specific pattern of protein accumulation in the brain that a pathologist can see. So from a pathology perspective, these two categories, neurodegenerative and non-neurodegenerative, are totally different. Everybody loves to talk about Alzheimer's first, so, just to keep things interesting, let's instead start our discussion with the non-neurodegenerative dementias, then we'll cover the neurodegenerative dementias. Let's start with normal pressure hydrocephalus, or NPH. This is the one with the mnemonic still widely taught in medical schools, wet, wacky, and wobbly. 
This refers to the classic triad of urinary incontinence, cognitive impairment, and gait impairment. One thing I want to emphasize throughout this episode, though, is that many of the same symptoms can be seen in the different dementia syndromes. What really helps distinguish them is the order in which these symptoms present, as well as the degree to which each symptom is present. In normal pressure hydrocephalus, for instance, gait impairment is the most prominent feature. The diagnosis requires imaging to confirm. You have to see enlargement of the ventricles, and you'll usually see relatively preserved cortex for the patient's age if it's the NPH that is really the cause of their cognitive impairment. This is a cause of dementia that can be reversible, though if there is significant or long-standing cognitive impairment associated with it, that's less likely to improve. The ataxia, however, the gait impairment, is more likely to improve. The treatment is to reduce the patient's intracranial pressure by either high-volume lumbar puncture, that's an LP, or by having neurosurgery place a ventriculoperitoneal shunt, that's a VP shunt. One interesting tidbit to know is that you can do a timed gait evaluation before and after you do your lumbar puncture with high-volume CSF removal, and if you see a difference, that difference has prognostic value. If the patient's timed gait shows evidence of improvement, that suggests that they will in fact benefit from a shunt. If there's no evidence of improvement, they're less likely to benefit. All right, let's move on to the next non-neurodegenerative cause of dementia, vascular dementia. This is just what it sounds like, dementia secondary to cerebrovascular disease. Typically, you're talking about either multiple infarcts that keep occurring over time, leading to the classic stepwise loss of cognitive function, or just chronic ischemia gradually leading to loss of cognitive function. This is a very common cause of dementia in the elderly, second only to Alzheimer's, and of course may occur concurrently with Alzheimer's, such that it's not always possible to determine to what extent each disease is contributing. But in cases where it's just one or the other, the two usually can be clinically differentiated. Alzheimer's, as we'll discuss in a minute, typically presents with early impairment in memory. In vascular dementia, memory impairment is typically a later finding. Instead, you might see early gait impairment, and you may also see something called pseudobulbar affect. Pseudobulbar affect is also known as emotional incontinence, and basically refers to an inability to control your emotions. So this may manifest as uncontrollable crying due to something that is only slightly sad, or laughing when you're angry, or basically having any number of excessive or inappropriate emotional responses to things. Anyway, pseudobulbar affect and early gait changes are two things to associate with vascular dementia, as well as the noticeably abrupt or stepwise changes in cognition that result from continuing cerebral events. MRI will typically yield findings suggestive of vascular disease, diffuse microhemorrhages or infarcts beyond what is usually seen. Treatments may include acetylcholinesterase inhibitors like donepezil, but really the most important thing to do is to go after the vascular disease risk factors and treat or minimize those. That is to say, take a statin, stop smoking, control your diabetes, lose weight, and so on. Okay, those are the two most important non-neurodegenerative causes of dementia, NPH and vascular dementia. 
Now let's dive into the meat of the discussion here and take on the neurodegenerative dementias. May as well begin with the big one, I guess, Alzheimer's disease. You may be tempted to pronounce this Alzheimer's without the T sound, or Alzheimer's like the name Al, but Alzheimer's, like the word all followed by the TZ sound, alts, is the correct way to pronounce this word in my opinion. This extremely common and important disorder could easily be a podcast episode unto itself, but we'll just stick to the highlights here today. It's named after Alois Alzheimer, a German psychiatrist and neuropathologist who first described a case of so-called presenile dementia featuring amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles. This disease accounts for roughly 75% of all cases of dementia. The greatest risk factor is age, but the one to remember for boards has to do with the apolipoprotein E gene. E3 is the normal allele for this gene. If you have the E4 variant of this gene, you're at increased risk of Alzheimer's. If you have the E2 variant, you're actually at decreased risk. This is actually one of the genetic results you can obtain through popular direct-to-consumer genetic testing services such as 23andMe. And it's one of those things you have to sort of think carefully about whether you really want to know since there isn't much you can do if you find out you are at increased risk. Anyway, other important risk factors are a family history of dementia, female sex, and a history of stroke. An enormous amount of research has gone into this disease, but a true understanding of it remains to be achieved. We know that there are these extracellular A-beta plaques involved, as well as intracellular tau tangles, which do seem to correlate with the degree of dementia, but it isn't clear if they cause the disease or are just incidental byproducts of some other primary process. For now, all you can do to try to prevent the disease is basically exercise, eat right, and keep your brain as stimulated as you can. Alright, let's turn our attention to the presentation of this disorder. Typically, the first cognitive ability to decline in Alzheimer's is the short-term memory. The patient starts misplacing items, the patient's family notices increased forgetfulness, language is also affected, the patient may have increased word-finding difficulties, he or she may hesitate before speaking, visuospatial cognition is another domain affected early on, and the patient may start getting lost more easily or getting disoriented in new places. Those are the early symptoms impairment of memory, language, and visuospatial function. As the disorder progresses, you may begin to see problems with executive function, calculation, and eventually significant impairment in mood, which can manifest as depression, apathy, anxiety, irritability, even agitation. Behavioral symptoms can get worse and worse, and the patients can even develop delusions. Hallucinations are quite rare, but they can be seen. And here's a real key, motor problems, for example problems with gait, are typically not seen until the disease is rather advanced, with significant impairment of daily function. So the takeaway here is that memory and speech and visuospatial orientation are the early things to look for in Alzheimer's, that you shouldn't see gait impairment or delusions till late in the disease course, and that you most likely won't see hallucinations at all, if you see any of those things early on, you may want to consider an alternative diagnosis. 
Alzheimer's is a diagnosis that can be made clinically, and that is what happens most often, especially in older patients with a relatively clear or classic presentation. But a confirmatory workup is possible and may be appropriate in cases that are not clear. An MRI may show widespread cortical atrophy, but the specific structure to remember is the hippocampus, which can be especially affected and is often affected early in the disease. The hippocampus is involved in the consolidation of memory, so atrophy there helps account for the disease's early symptoms of memory loss and spatial disorientation. The hippocampus plays a role in the spatial memory that enables navigation as well. Other imaging tests that can be done, though are rarely needed, are the FDG PET scan, often used in oncology, and the perfusion SPECT scan, which I won't go into except to say that these tests can reflect patterns of brain function suggestive of Alzheimer's. Just realize that though these imaging tests can support the diagnosis, none are very specific, so none are diagnostic in themselves. A test that is actually quite specific, interestingly, is an LP. Alzheimer's-specific biomarkers can be detected in the CSF. To be precise, what you would see is decreased A-beta-42 and increased tau and phosphorylated tau levels. I'm not sure we need to know those specific changes even as internal medicine residents, but it's definitely good to realize that CSF findings can confirm the diagnosis if needed, for instance for research purposes, or perhaps in a case of, say, an unusually young patient who appears to have Alzheimer's, but they're so young that you need to be sure it isn't something else. All right, let's move on to treatment. There are lots of non-pharmacologic lifestyle modifications that are recommended, ensuring proper sleep, a heart-healthy diet, daily exercise, that sort of thing. Pharmacologically, denepazil, rivastigmine, and galantamine are all acetylcholinesterase inhibitors with similar modest benefits in cognitive performance. The most common side effect of these medications is GI upset, which is actually quite common and does lead to discontinuation of the medicine in a good percentage of patients. Another possibly more testable side effect to know is that these medicines can affect conduction, so use them with caution in patients with bradycardia. And conversely, if you have a patient with bradycardia and they're on an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor, you may want to stop the acetylcholinesterase inhibitor and see if their bradycardia improves before you go putting a pacemaker in them or something like that. Memantine, an NMDA receptor antagonist, can be added on later in the disease course for some benefit. Alright, there's more that could be said about Alzheimer's disease, but I think that's enough for today. This episode is getting a bit long, so I think what I'm going to do is finish off the neurodegenerative dementias, Lewy body slash Parkinson's, frontotemporal, Huntington's, a couple others, in the next episode as a part two about dementia. So keep an eye peeled for that. All right, that's a wrap. As always, please feel free to email me with questions, feedback, or comments at themedicinepodcast at gmail.com. If you like the show, please do leave a rating or a review, or better yet, send a link to the podcast to a friend. All right then, that's the sound of the train by my apartment. See you next time.